The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. So we're uh, in our series, uh, In Spite of Us, the story of God and his people in 1 Samuel. And uh, in this section, what we're dealing with is the, the disobedience and the rejection of, and the eventual self-destruction of King Saul as the king of the Israelites. And at the same time, the, the really improbable rise of the shepherd boy, David, to become the second king, in fact, the greatest king in Israel's history. And as well, just like, just to top it all off, he's going to become king, the second king, the greatest king. He's also going to be the great, 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 great you know, on grandfather of Jesus himself. He's going to be Jesus' ancestor. So this is a pretty important part of the whole, like, redemption story. What's going on in history is God is working with his people, redeeming his people. And, and here's the, the thing that we have to think about is that you don't move from being a shepherd, uh, like a, a, a poet shepherd, a songwriter. You don't, you don't move from being a, a songwriting, poem-writing shepherd to being king without some unusual things happening. And, and that's what we have seen, right? We've already started to see some, some unusual things. We mentioned it last week. It's sort of like a soap opera at this point of 1 Samuel. It's like more and more ridiculous things seem to keep happening as Saul just becomes more and more just absolutely envious and jealous of David to the point that he actually goes in practically insane, and meanwhile, David rises to the position other than the fact that the big key factor was that God was with David, we saw last week, right? But the, the key factor in David's rise to becoming king is this one truth, this one thing, is that his relationship or his friendship with Jonathan uh, the crown prince of Israel. And we're gonna key in on several passages in the beginning of chapter 18, chapter 20, and chapter 23. And we're gonna highlight and look at the friendship that David had with Jonathan and, and, and how incredible that friendship was. And, and what we're gonna see is that Jonathan's love for David plays a crucial or a, a critical role in David's surviving because Saul, Jonathan's dad, is trying to kill him, and it's gonna play a crucial role in actually all of redemptive history. The, the decisions that Jonathan makes here, the way that he loves David, the way that he's a friend to David, is actually gonna change all of redemptive history. It changes your history and my history as well, because right now in this story, David, his life hangs in the balance. His life, his dreams, his hopes, everything hangs in the balance because the king, the most powerful man in Israel, his father-in-law has now decided that David is so much a threat that he's gonna kill him and he's tried to kill him multiple times and it's not even, even halfway over all that he's gonna put into trying to kill David. Now, the friendship of Jonathan with David is really what turns the tide. The friendship of, of David and Jonathan is the stuff of legend. It's, like, it's the stuff of, of poetry. Uh, what, what Romeo and Juliet are to romance, really Jonathan and David are to friendship. 
Uh, it's, it's the sort of thing that, like, like neither, neither story really ends like happily ever after, right? I mean, Romeo and Juliet ends, that's not like a happily ever after ending, but it's the, it's the kind of love that you see between them. And you're like, man, if I could just experience and taste that kind of love, man, that would just be, that would be earth shattering. And the same thing with Jonathan's friendship with David. This kind of love and devotion that we see between them really causes us to long for this kind of friendship. And so here's some things that we're gonna think about, I want you guys to think about as we're going through this, is, is really what is it that created this kind of friendship between David and Jonathan? If this is sort of like the epic kind of friendship, what is it that created this friendship? And then here's a question that you and I should have as we're thinking about this is, is this kind of friendship even possible for you and me? Because I don't know about you, but you know, I love Megan a lot. Uh, but sometimes when I see like some of these like romantic stories like Romeo and Juliet, I'm like, eh, I don't know if I would have, you know, I don't know if I would you know, drink that poison. I, I'll just be honest with you. Like, like I, I miss her and I'm gonna cry and all, but I just don't know if I love that deeply, right? And so sometimes like we can watch romantic movies or read romantic stories and you're like, hey, that's really awesome for somebody to be that crazy in love, but that's not my kind of love. And sometimes we can see a relationship between Jonathan and David and you're like, hey, that's a really cool story, but that, hey, that's not the way I roll. Like that's not that, I don't love anybody that deeply. And what we need to ask is, is, is this kind of relationship, is this kind of friendship, is this kind of love even possible for you and me? And if it is, then how does that even happen? And, and if it is possible, is it even important to actually pursue and to have in my life? We're gonna examine how God uses the friendship of David and Jonathan this morning. We're gonna have three takeaways. The first of which is the richness of friendship. The second, the rarity of friendship. And just to throw you guys off, the third is not, not an R, the divinity of friendship. The richness of friendship, the rarity of friendship, and the divinity of friendship. That drove Dale crazy as I stopped the alliteration there in the second. I couldn't bring myself to it. Firstly, the richness of friendship. So as we've seen before, Saul has disobeyed the Lord and God has rejected him as king. And now the young shepherd David, he was uh, surprisingly anointed by Samuel to be the next king of Israel. And that really starts his meteoric rise to prominence. He kills Goliath. We know that story, right? Most of you guys do. He kills Goliath and then he becomes a, a general and he wins all these battles against the Philistines. And now we get to the point where David's popularity rivals or even exceeds that of Saul. Like, like you know, David's appearing on the cover of Time like David's winning all these awards. Like, like the people are like drafting like David for King kind of posters. Like there's little David fan clubs scattered around the place. Like little girls had David posters in their rooms. Like it's he's a really big deal in Israel. It's got everybody kind of like David's the hot thing, and that like drives Saul crazy, insanely jealous. And so here's the interesting thing that we see that begins at the sort of whole beginning of the soap opera that's gonna anchor David and get him through the whole time. If you have your Bible, you can turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18. We're going to look in verse 1. 1 Samuel 18, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, there's some black Bibles underneath the table, uh, the table, the chairs. You're free to grab one, help yourself. 18.1. As soon as he, that's David, this is right after David defeated the Philistine. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of, da of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own. 
Verse three, and then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. Now, the thing that stands out to me whenever I read this passage is like right off the bat, like David is speaking to Saul after the defeat of Goliath, and all of a sudden, Jonathan, the crown prince, here's this shepherd boy talking to the king after this defeat, and it says, like, something that David said stirred Jonathan's soul so that it knit his soul or knit his heart to David, and it says Jonathan loved David as his own soul. Now, what in the world could David say that would cause Jonathan to be stirred in his soul and to feel like, hey, you just spoke, my heart is knit to you and I love you as my own soul and it's gonna cause me to make a covenant with you so that I even take my robe and my weapons and I put them in your hands. And I think this is it. If you look back at verse 45 in David's confrontation with Goliath, Goliath had been taunting the Israelites for weeks and weeks and weeks day after day and after day, taunting them, making fun of the Israelites' God. And David shows up and he's like, why won't anybody make this Philistine shut up? He is, don't you see, he is blaspheming our God. He's calling our God out. That is not okay. David loved the Lord and he had a deep and abiding passion for God and his glory. He had a zeal and a love for God to be glorified above all things. So then when he hears this tall, strong, strapping Philistine calling out the Israelites and making fun of their God, then David I love this. It says he was small and cute and ruddy, but he stands before God. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, and this takes some cojones to say this. If you guys allow me to say that, it takes some cojones to say this standing before an undefeated incredibly tall, incredibly strong warrior. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth. That, and this is the key phrase, I think this is when it was really, I think it had, it had everybody's attention at this point. Jonathan's watching, but it's this point that I think it knit David to Jonathan's heart. That all this, that the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. Here's why I'm standing before you because it's not by might but it's by the power of the Lord that he delivers and I think when Jonathan saw that, whenever he heard David say that, whenever he saw him standing there in front of Goliath, and then he sees the Lord deliver Goliath into his hands, just as he told Goliath would happen, it knit David's soul to, this it knit Jonathan's soul and his heart to David. He said, that's my kind of man. 
that's who I want to be my friend and be my companion. Because what we saw in pages before that is though Saul is often cowering and looking for his best interest in this one battle where he is incredibly overmatched and he says, the Lord will deliver them into our hands. And so then when he sees David stand up and say the same thing to Goliath, he says, that's the kind of guy I want to be with. His, because both of their hearts, here's why their hearts were melded with each other, because both of their hearts were set on the Lord and his glory and his zeal. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And then it says that Jonathan loved him as his own. And here's how it happened, because Jonathan's love and passion for the Lord, he heard a, a, a resemblance, he heard, a, he heard the same note being sung by David and his passion and love for the Lord. And that caused Jonathan to bind up his good with David. It says he loved him as his own soul. What does that mean? Don't you always seek your best? And so now he's decided, Jonathan says, David shares my heart and my soul, and I'm gonna seek his best as I would myself. And that causes David, Jonathan to make, then make a covenant with David. He says, because you have the passion for the Lord above all things, and I have a passion for the Lord above all things, we're gonna make a covenant together that we're gonna be friends and we're gonna share this passion. We're gonna pursue this passion together with all that we have and I'm binding myself and all that I have to you and all that you have to that greater end that we are both looking at. That's where we're going. And then that caused him to do something incredible. I don't think we can get beyond this. We already mentioned it before, but Jonathan stripped himself of his robe and his armor, his sword, his bow, and his belt. All of that represented Jonathan's authority. It represented his position as the crown prince of Israel. He said, I am so focused on the Lord and his glory and his zeal that I see in you the same passion. I'm binding our hearts together. And if the Lord, I see upon you that the Lord has caused you to, called you to be the king of Israel. And I'm okay with that as long as the Lord is pleased. Even if that means me stepping down and giving up my position for you and your position. Isn't that a beautiful thing? That's, that's, a, that's a beautiful, amazing thing. And that doesn't happen just because like, I just, I'm lonely and I just want a friend. That happens because we happen to be looking at the same object. We share a same passion. And I look over at you and I say, you share that passion too? I love the Lord. Look at all he's done for me. If that's true, then we can covet it together. If you're locked in on that, then we can covet it together and we can, I can give you all that I possess in order that we will both receive the end that we're focused on and that is God being glorified above all things. C.S. Lewis, has a, he wrote a book on love, The Four Loves. If you haven't read it, you should read it. He has this chapter on friendship. He calls it one of the, the overlooked love. Nobody talks about friendship in terms of like we think about romantic love and we think about affection like a mother would have for a child, but we don't think about friendship as this deep abiding special kind of love. And he says it's different than other kinds of love in that romantic love is two people looking at each other and saying, man, I really like you, I love you, I love all that you bring to the table. I love the way that you look and you smell and the way you taste, I, I love the, 
I love that we, I love the, the beauty that you have. I love how you love me. I love how you make me feel. That's the way romantic love looks. That's, that's how it feels. That's, that's this position it has. But friendship are two people not facing each other, but two people facing a common object where they say, oh, you're, you're focused on the Lord? Oh, then we have something in common at a deep, deep level. We share a friendship. It doesn't have to be about the Lord. It can be about anything. Uh, I, I went to the, uh, the national championship game. I just want to throw that out, Dale, when Clemson played and won. And, and I was standing, standing there uh, in an incredibly tense game uh, surrounded by people who I had never met before in my entire life. And in fact, I don't think I would, they would really like me or I may even like them outside of that place. But we both happened to be wearing that beautiful tiger paw. And we were standing there and, and we were through the whole pregame and during the game, like we're talking, we're excited. And by the end, like literally we're crying crying together and hugging each other and taking selfies with people. I don't even remember who they are or what their name is, but we shared a common focus that united us. And you can share about horses or about fashion or about, you know, another team from Columbia. Like you can, you can share like whatever that binds you together, but nothing, nothing binds you together like the deepest passion and zeal of all that is for the Lord and his glory. The interesting thing that we see at this beginning of their relationship is that if you see that wording, it says Jonathan made a covenant with David. He loved him as his own soul. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David. Like everything seems to be on Jonathan's side and it would be easy to kind of think like, man, this is a one-sided relationship. But, but here's why it's worded like, like that. Because David brings nothing to the table in the terms of a friendship with Jonathan. Jonathan is rich and powerful. He's probably educated he, is, he has armor. Uh, he is the crown prince. He's waiting to be king of Israel. He has great power and authority. David is a shepherd who writes poetry and brings very little to the table. He has, he has no possessions or land. But friendship has this power. When we both are, are looking at the same object, friendship has this power to even the playing field between the two people. It, friendship brings up the other person to your level because we have this shared passion. Jonathan's friendship raises David to like happen to be going this generally the same direction as I am or the same stores. Like, are you a Target person or a Walmart person? Like, that's really not, that, those are companions. Friendship goes deeper and it raises two people to the same level because of the shared passion. It looks over and say, you too? Me too. Let's go to this. And that's all that we need. It doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor, whether you're ugly or good looking. It doesn't matter what you bring to the table, what you have in your bank account or what you drove. We share that same passion and it raises us to the same level together. And let's look at how this friendship plays out for Jonathan and for David when the chips really get down. Because as uh, this ad keeps trying to kill his best friend. And at the beginning of chapter 20, David runs to Jonathan as he's escaping from Saul, and he says, why is your dad trying to kill me? And Jonathan's like, I know he's not trying to kill you. He would tell me if he was trying to kill you. I'm the crown prince. And he's like, no, he knows that we're friends, and he's afraid that you would say something to me. And Jonathan's like, well, we'll, we'll figure this out. And they, uh, they come up with this uh, scheme, this plan that 
and the new moon festival where uh, all of Saul's people would be expected to come into his household and have dinner together during this new moon festival, David would be expected there. And David says, I'm not gonna show up and you tell me how he reacts. If he's like okay with it, then I know that I'm okay with him. But if he gets angry, then know that he wanted me to come so that he could kill me. And that's exactly what happens as we, as we read. Uh, Saul like, lets it go for a day, then the second day he asks Jonathan, where's, he doesn't even call him David anymore. He says, where's that son of Jesse? And he says, well, he wanted to go make a sacrifice with the, in his local town, and John, uh, Saul freaks out on Jonathan. He tries to kill his own son because he realizes that Jonathan's in league with David. And he totally freaks out and tries to kill him as well. Let's look at them. When they're talking before this, before this fest, before this feast, in verse three of chapter 20, it says, David vowed again, saying, your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he is grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. This first thing that we see, this first element of true friendship that we see that makes it so, so rich is that between two friends who share a common object, a common passion above all other passions, above all other objects, it allows you to be absolutely honest with each other. Do you have friendships and relationships where you can be absolutely honest with each other? I don't mean like when you're trying to hurt each other. But whenever you can say something to somebody that you know they don't want to hear, something that you know that they might make them uncomfortable, like, like telling them, hey, your dad's trying to kill me, like that doesn't make somebody that, you know, that's a hard conversation to have. But David felt united with Jonathan and safe enough with a shared passion above all other passions that he could tell him, be deeply honest and say, hey, your dad, he really wants to be dead. That's what's going on here. Don't, don't be blinded by that. And then we see in response that this friendship, this deep, true friendship provides a richness to their life that Jonathan's response back to David rather than being defensive is to have a disposition to help. Jonathan has an automatic disposition to help David. And then look what else happens in verse eight. Uh, Jonathan Sorry, David tells Jonathan, therefore deal kindly with your servant, for you brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, far be it from you, if I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? David feels absolutely comfortable with Jonathan because they have pledged themselves to each other and to a greater passion, the Lord, so that David knows that he can be unguard, heck, he can have unguarded vulnerability with Jonathan. Do you have friendships and relationships that you can have unguarded vulnerability with each other? Because love in itself, any kind of love, to be true love, it has to be unguarded and it has to be vulnerable. It's like that in romantic relationships, but it's also like that in friendships. Because just like Jonathan came to David and he, he laid his robe and his sword and all his armor before David and he gave it to him, he was making himself absolutely and completely vulnerable to David at that moment. And so therefore, David could be absolutely and completely vulnerable 
with Jonathan, and they knew that they were safe with each other, not just because they had made promises to each other, but because that promises, those promises were made on a shared passion that was greater than them. And then look what happens as also that springs from this relationship in verse 14. Uh, Jonathan tells David, if I am still alive, that's saying like whenever all this happens and the Lord makes this well with you, if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die and do not cut off your steadfast love for my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies, and Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as his own soul. Jonathan is executing this plan that he knows is gonna remove him and his father eventually from power. And David's gonna have all the power in the kingdom. And at that point, David can do anything that he wants. He could be, Jonathan knows that up to this point, it's possible that David could be using him in order to sit on the throne. And then once he gets to the throne, then he can just like do like a mob hit, just take everybody out of Saul's family. But he exposes himself and because he knows that there's a covenantal commitment between him and between David. We also see in that, we see this, this unselfish love that pours out between Jonathan and David. Jonathan loves David, knows that he should be king, and Jonathan's gonna help David be king even though that means he won't be. And he can make unselfish moves. Why? Because they are both locked on a higher, greater passion, the greatest passion above them, that is the Lord. And we see in, just real quickly, we see also this, this sort of love and care between Jonathan and David that is what we call disinterested love or disinterested care. And that means that's the kind of love that's not looking for what do I get out of this, but it's totally saying what is best for you in this situation? Do you have friends that do that with you and do you do that with your friends around you? Or do you use friendships? Do you use the people that you're in relationship with in order to make you happy? in order to serve your purposes and your ends. We see in chapter 23 and verse 16 through 18 that when David is down, when the chips are down and he's hiding away from Saul out in the wilderness and he has nothing to his name, he's surrounded by no one, that Jonathan comes to him and he encourages or strengthens his hand in the Lord by reminding him of God's promises to David. Do you and do you have friendships where there's truthful encouragement between each other and not just like, hey, feel better or things are gonna get better better in the morning or there's a, there's a silver lining around every cloud or hey, I, you know, just like mindless kind of empty encouragement or do you have, are you to others and do you have friendships with you that actually encourage each other truthfully in the promises of the Lord and not just to make each other feel better? Perhaps you don't because you don't have a greater passion than yourself. Perhaps you don't have true and abiding, deep, vulnerable, beautiful, rich, honest friendships marked by unguarded vulnerability with a covenantal commitment with each other because you don't share a passion greater than yourself. 
Maybe whenever you pull friends and relationships around you, you're really seeking what can they do for me rather than looking at a greater passion and saying, would you join, are you, you going that direction too? Let's go together. And if we're focused on that, then we can be free with each other back and forth. Friendship by nature, it doesn't do well whenever we're just constantly trying to dissect it. We're constantly trying to take the temperature of the friendship when we turn to each other and constantly asking people, how much do you love me? Do you really love me? And we make people run through these little mental tests where they prove constantly their friendships aren't made to work that way. They're made to work by sharing a common interest and passion that's greater than ourselves. Friendship that described here is rich, but it's also rare. These kind of friendships are seldom seen, aren't they? Most of what you and I call friends are really companions. And there's a great role for companions. People who happen to be the same place at the same time as you. That's a, that's a great that's a role that people have in our lives that we have in other people's lives. But many of us never pursue deep and abiding friendship because, you know why? Because number one, friendship is unnecessary. Like, Romantic love is necessary in order to propagate the species. It's necessary because we have these certain bodily functions that desire someone else. But friendship doesn't work like that. It's totally and absolutely seemingly unnecessary for society and for ourselves. And so most of us, because it's not instinctive or biologically needed, like it's sort of peripheral to us. Also, friendship is rare, this type of friendship, because friendship is by nature voluntary. Like, like two people can be lovers because they were forced to marry each other. Two people can be a mother and a son because they just, one happened to beget the other one. You may not like each other, but like there is a relationship that is like undeniable between parent and child or siblings, but uh, you have bosses, you have companion, uh, people at work, like you didn't choose them, like you just happened to be there. But friendship is absolutely and totally voluntary and it's voluntarily on both parties, right? Uh, there's no such thing as a friendship on, that's just one-sided. That's like a lonely person that's stalking somebody else. Uh, friendship, true friendship, is voluntary from both sides. There's, there's not any kind of compulsion that's involved and that makes friendship rare because it's unnecessary, because it's voluntary. And this is also, I think, maybe one of the big reasons Friendship is exposing. By nature to be in, in true, this kind of friendship with people, if I'm friends with you, you're gonna begin to know just what a dirtbag I am. If I'm, friendship, if I'm in a friendship with you and we're, we go this kind of deep, like you're gonna know like, that I have morning breath. You're gonna know that I snore. You're gonna know that like early in the morning when I haven't had my coffee yet, like I'm, I'm not just like, I'm really not good guy to be around. You're gonna know like, hey, Randy, he gets a little bit over competitive. You're gonna know like, Randy, he talks a, like, maybe not a little bit, like a lot too much about Clemson and it gets really, really annoying. He brings into every sermon and into conversations. Like, like it's, it's all like, like, you're gonna get to know all my little idiosyncrasies that, would, that, I, that I'm afraid are gonna drive you crazy and drive you away from me. You're gonna know my sin. There's gonna be a time where I'm gonna have to come to you and I'm gonna have to admit to you my wrong and I'm gonna have to expose myself and trust that you're gonna forgive me in return. You're gonna know secrets about me that I'm gonna have to trust 
that you're not gonna go tell other people. Friendship is exposing. It's bearing my soft underside to my friend and trusting that they're not gonna turn around and stab me with my own sword. There's no planned defense in friendship. There's no planned way of buffering. It is totally, for it to be true, this kind of friendship, it is totally exposed to the people around me. And like I already mentioned, friendship is not easily dissected. That makes it rare too. Because, because there's this part of us that desires friendship and relationship so much, it can be easy to constantly be like taking the test, like testing the waters, taking the temperature of the friendships around us. Or, do you love me? Or, are we okay? Is everything all right between us? And to an extent, that's okay. But eventually, you're just like, man, like, you know, I'll have these conversations with my wife, but I don't want to have it with you, Dale, every single time we get together. Friendship isn't made to, be, to bear up under that constant temperature taking, that constant dissecting. It's not made for that. We picture lovers face to face, but friends facing a common goal. And for many of us, like just the fact that we, we want it so much, we're always trying to take those temperature means that we don't have a higher goal that we're looking at, and that's why we can't have those kinds of friendships. Now, as I'm describing this kind of friendship, there's some of you guys, or maybe ladies as well, you're sitting here and you're like, oh, that's okay, Randy, I didn't really come to hear like a, a cute little like elementary school talk about friendship and its importance, and how we should be nice to each other, and, 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 and honestly, the kind of friendship or kind of relationship you're talking about even makes me uncomfortable. What some of us really shy away from is we shy away from really being known. Doesn't that, isn't that kind of scary for someone to really know us? To know all of us. Isn't that scary? And so some of us would say we would just rather not even try because we're so repulsed by the idea of being vulnerable and being exposed to someone else. For some of us, we long for this kind of acceptance. We long to be known. We long to have this kind of affection reciprocated with us. And either way, it's something that we need. And even if it's this part of you that repulses you, deeper down there's somewhere inside you that says, man, I really would like to be known like that. Why are friendships like this so rare? Because you and I are so unable to make ourselves known to the people around us. People around us. We're so beyond making, being able to make relationships about somebody or something else than me. Isn't that true? Don't you find like sometimes like actually what really continues to torpedo your romantic relationships, your marriage, your friendships is really that you want their relationship to be all about you. And yet there's this beautiful divinity in friendship. If, if somewhere deep inside your soul, somewhere, maybe even in your conscious soul, whenever I'm describing this kind of relationship between Jonathan and David and asking you, do you have this kind of relationship? Do you have this kind of friendship? If somewhere deep inside your your, your heart was moved and you, you're like, man, I, I don't think I can have that. I, that's not who I am, but man, I wish that was true. 
my friendships and relationships. If somewhere in there you feel this longing, it's because it's what you were made for. God himself is friends with himself, if you can wrap your head around that. Throughout all of eternity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have existed absolutely vulnerable, exposed, seeking the best in a covenantal relationship with himself, with the three persons of the Godhead in himself. God has always had community and friendship in the Trinity. And whenever he created man and placed him in the garden, he saw this is it was good. And then he says, oh, it's not good that man should dwell alone. He made you and me in the image of God and we desire to know and be known. We desire to live in community because he made us to live in community. And he gave Adam Eve, which is romantic love. But he's also saying it's not good for man to dwell alone, period. You are not made to be an island to yourself. You can't do it. It is unfulfilling. It's not what you were made for. The friendship that we see between Jonathan and David was deep and real and covenantal. Jonathan said, the Lord is between us. And he was saying that because it is, we were made for that kind of love with each other. And the only way to get there is to have the Lord be the Lord of our lives and the Lord of our relationships to the extent that we can bear ourselves with each other and have this kind of friendship in this kind of relationship. We long for to know and be known. We long for this kind of disinterested love between us and the people around us. But we long for it because that's what we were made. We were made to be vulnerable like that. We were made to be, um, that therefore we are allowed to love others around us freely without expecting anything in return. Where does that kind of power and love come from? the kind that can change our relationships, that can change our marriages and our friendships to such an extent that it looks like a different kind of love where we're not seeking the interest of our own, but we're seeking the interest of others around us. How can that even happen? We see it in this beautiful passage in the New Testament in John chapter 15, verse 13. Jesus said this to his disciples, people who had been walking with him now for three years. They had seen Jesus at his best and worst, whatever the worst of Jesus was. I mean, I imagine waking up in disheveled hair. Jesus probably had morning breath. There are probably times he had Jesus, you need a mint. And he had seen them at their worst. And this is what he says to them. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servant. For the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I've heard from my father, I have made known to you. This is the covenantal, steadfast love of God to you, that he no longer calls his enemy but he calls his friend. This morning, are you a friend of God?
And if you are, this steadfast, constant love has been poured out upon you. There's no, nothing that you can do that can change it. David brought nothing of real value to the relationship with Jonathan. Jonathan had all the power and authority, and the same is true with Jesus. You and I don't bring anything to the table to him. In fact, we bring negative to the table. We bring our sinful selves. We bring ourselves under the rightful wrath of God. We bring ourselves with our brokenness and our rightfully deserved uh, repayment for the wrongdoings that we have done to him and done to others around us. And yet he has taken off his robe and his armor and that kind of unselfish, incredible love can give us the power to have unselfish love with the friends around us because we see what is greater and his love fills our hearts and then enables us to love each other deeply and sacrificially and unselfishly. And yet, I'll say this as we get ready to wrap up. And yet this kind of unselfish love is actually incredibly selfish. Here's the beauty. It's, it's this unselfish love that God gives us to empower us to have unselfish love to the people around us, our friends, is actually incredibly selfish because it says, I insist for your betterment. No matter what it costs me, I insist for your betterment. No matter what it costs me, because that brings me the greatest joy. And I want that greatest joy, even if it means unselfishness. Just like Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, for what? For the joy that was set before him to please the Father and to bring his children home. This steadfast love that we see between Jonathan and David is born of two people who share a passion for the Lord based upon all that he has done and is doing for them. And then we can commit to see the Lord's purposes fulfilled in each other just the way Jonathan and David did with each other. That's what the Bible calls brotherly love between the daughters and the sons of God. And how did he say that they would know that we are his disciples? By our love for one another. That's why this is so important. We need to love each other the way Jonathan and David love each other. Not because we're great friends, but because we have a common great friend who is greater than all else. And then people can see our lives the way we look back and see Jonathan and David and say, that is a legendary, miraculous kind of love between them. Isn't that beautiful? The empowering friendship of Jesus frees us to be friends like he was. The empowering friendship of Jesus empowers us to be friends like he was. I'm gonna pray for us. The band's gonna come up. Prepare our hearts for communion. This morning, let's remember, let's remember that your, your God became your friend whenever his body was broken for you and his blood shed for you. And if you're not a friend of God, 
May today be the day that happens. Let us go forward with a love that's spread abroad in our hearts from the God himself. Lord, I pray that you would show us that our greatest friend is Jesus Christ. Inexplicably, he calls us friends and he gave himself for us, exhibiting the greatest love. And when we see that kind of love and that kind of friendship, we find the power and the ability to live vulnerably and sacrificially, unselfishly, yet selfishly looking for the betterment of the people around us, the friends around us. And God, I pray that you would make us, you make this body, that you make believers in this area, those kind of people. So the people from the outside would say, that is a legendary kind of love that they exhibit to each other that you would receive all the glory and the honor and the praise for that. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.